The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. Welcome back. And if you have a Bible with you or in your Bible app, would you mind finding the book of Exodus and chapter 14? The book of Exodus, chapter 14, if you have a Bible or a Bible app. We have some Bibles in the back as well. If you need a Bible, please pick up one and keep it if you'd like. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, so it's pretty easy to find. We are in chapter 14. Chapter 14. Just wanted to say before, before Emily prays and reads our passage, thank you. If you had a chance to pray for us for our elders and wives retreat, thank you so much for doing so. I think we had our best one yet, and we've been doing this for, I don't know, maybe 10 years. So thank you for praying. I do believe the Lord was meeting us with joy and relationship building and mutual care. So I wanted to tell you that and say thank you so very much. We find it's super helpful and important, such that we can care for and serve alongside of you, the people we love the most. So thanks very much. Emily? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come fall specifically on Grace Church this morning. Help us to put away our busy distractions and cares and to stop, to rest, and to listen. As we read Exodus 14, please ignite our imaginations to be awestruck by your mighty works on behalf of your people. Lord, use your living and active word to do a mighty work in the hearts of these people here this morning. Like the nation of Israel, let us believe and fear the Lord more this morning. Amen. Exodus 14, verses 15 through 31. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and a pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down upon the Egyptian forces, 
and through the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us free from, flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back up on the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall for them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Emily. Interesting little anecdote. At the beginning of World War II, Oxford University was considered, considering whether they should close down. Oxford University, let's close the doors. What good is education, they wondered, when, it, when England needs all of her resources just to survive. Well, the famous Oxford Don C.S. Lewis delivered a message there at Oxford entitled, Learning in Wartime. And Lewis said the following, quote, Good philosophy must exist because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Good philosophy must exist because, you know what, guys, there's some bad philosophy out there. In other words, if I could paraphrase, ideas have consequences. In particular, theological ideas have consequences. What you believe matters a lot. Good theology must exist. To paraphrase again, good theology must exist because bad theology exists in me, in us, in you sometimes. It is often said that we are all theologians, and that's true, but we don't always have the theology of the Nicene Creed functioning for us when we wake up in the morning or go through hard times. We need to know and remind ourselves of the theology we're living by and being shaped by, and in particular, the theology of salvation we're believing and living by and being shaped by. We need to know, do we believe God rescues? Do we believe he saves in Jesus? And why? Why would God do so? And how, how does God save? And how should I be responding day by day to such a salvation? Friends, good theology must exist because bad theology often exists in me. 
And this passage can help us. Phil Riken has written, to study Exodus is to learn the theology of salvation. To study this book, we are learning the theology of salvation. And certainly, this passage is one of those that helps us in particular. The Passover and now this passage helps us learn the theology of salvation. As, as Moses said in verse 13, to the people, see the salvation of the Lord. That's what we want to do this morning. See the salvation of the Lord to have good theology functioning in our hearts and minds. Let's see that in three pieces. First, salvation for glory. First piece of this theology of salvation, salvation for glory, God's glory. Put yourself in this scene. You and your people have been enslaved in Egypt for centuries, but God brought nine devastating plagues, laying waste to the land of Egypt until that one last plague when God's judgment fell on the firstborn of Egypt, but God passed over the firstborn of your house because you had the blood of a lamb, the blood of a substitute dripping down the doorframe of your house. So God passed over you in judgment with that final plague. Pharaoh and the Egyptians said, get out, please. Leave quickly. Thank you very much. Take our stuff. You thought you were then home free. On the promised land express. But as we saw last week, God then had us camp next to the sea with no way forward. Then you hear a rumbling in the distance. And you see dust rising on the horizon. It's Pharaoh, his army, and 600 chariots, the, the tanks of the ancient world. We don't have any weapons. We are slaves fleeing this land. We don't have weapons to defend ourselves. We don't have chariots and horses. We are we are helpless and completely vulnerable. Completely vulnerable. We are fearing greatly, the text says in verse 10. I mean, that's understandable. We are fearing greatly. We are entirely helpless. We are entirely vulnerable. We are crying out to the Lord. We pick it up in verse 15 and we read, Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? <laughs> this is said to Moses, but certainly addressing the people. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. It's basically God saying, stop the prayer meeting. <laughs> Not many scenes like this. Stop Talking, stop crying out to me. No more prayer. It's time to go forward. So verse 16 to Moses. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea 
on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. God says, Moses, lift up your staff, stretch it out over the, hand, over the sea to show that what is about to happen is no accident. It's no natural disaster. It's no fluke of nature. God is doing this. And he's doing something rather frightening in verse 17. Hardening the Egyptians' hearts, giving them over to what they want, to their own destruction. That, that's frightening. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, and we're so glad you're here, please take care. Take care that doesn't happen to you. Respond to him today, lest God give you over to what you want for your own destruction. So, Moses, lift up your hand. I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians. Now notice why. Notice why as verse 17 continues. God says, and I, I will get glory. Glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the true God. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory, glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, this was originally written in Hebrew. Hebrew does not have exclamation marks. Hebrew provides emphasis by repetition. Did you notice the repetition? Verse 17. God says, I will get glory. Verse 18, God says, I will get glory. If you look back up to verse 4, you see the same thing. Verse 4, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. In this crucial moment of salvation in the Old Testament, God explicitly tells us why he's doing what he's doing, repeating the word glory. I will get glory in this act of salvation. Glory meaning his, his weightiness being seen and rejoiced in. That's what glory means. His weight, the, the weight of his worth, the, the heaviness, you might say, of his greatness and, and majesty being seen and rejoiced in. So God's fundamental motivation is not us-centered here. It's him-centered for his glory. And that idea, friends, has consequences. That idea is important. The great reformer Martin Luther talked about how we are all curved in on ourselves, left to ourselves. That's our tendency to be curved in on ourselves. Some can tell you that describes tabs all too often. When life becomes all about how is, how, how is this situation affecting tab, that's my main concern. Life's all about tabs, preferences. Are my preferences being sufficiently heated? Is this situation convenient for tab? All too often I am curved in on myself. Can you relate? I hope I'm not the only one. 
But we bring that curved in nature to our theology of salvation. Sometimes it's said with the very best of intentions, and, and there, there are true elements, with the very best of intentions, sometimes it's said, if you were the only person in the world, only person in the world, Jesus still would have died for you. Said with the very best of intentions, but is the cross of Christ really about our personal worth? Isn't the cross of Christ more about, more about the seriousness of our sin and our desperate plight before a holy God? And isn't it much more about the glory of God, the glory of his holiness, the glory of his justice, the glory of his love and mercy and grace? I'm not saying God doesn't love you. <laughs> I'm saying he loves you and sent his son for you for his glory. Just survey the book of Romans later, like Romans chapter 9. God makes known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Romans 11, after chapters of this great salvation, from him, through him, to him, are all things to him, to him, not me, to him be glory forever. Or Romans 15, God sent his son to the world that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Friends, this theology of salvation helps turn us a bit away from ourselves. It helps counteract some of that curved-in tendency to help us, to help us glorify God for his mercy in Christ. I thought about how the Sunday service can help us that way. We come and through song, scripture, and sacrament, we are turned out a bit from our curved-in nature to behold his glory. Even as you come and you serve, you serve in children's ministry or setup and takedown or what have you, you are, you are turning outward, you are beholding more of him, making this service possible for his glory. Friends, come with that expectation and intention. Come knowing God's going to meet me to behold salvation for his glory once again. That's the first piece of this theology of salvation. The second piece I would call salvation through judgment. First, salvation for glory. And then secondly, salvation through judgment. See, the first piece was why God saves. The second piece is how. In verse 19, the cloud and the pillar of fire, which had been guiding the people forward now moves behind them. And I just wonder what this was like. <laughs> the massive cloud that has been guiding us, helpfully guiding us forward, now on the move as we stand at the seashore with no place to go. The cloud now begins to move. And the, and the cloud here is identified in verse 19 as the angel of God. Aren't you wondering, are we done for? Where is the cloud going? Why is it leaving? Is God abandoning us? Actually, no. God moves behind, uh, the pillar 
and the cloud moves behind the people to protect the people, to protect the people from the Egyptian army. This is about God's personal involvement and care as he cares for you. And then verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea as he was told, and the Lord, notice this verse, drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. There is something of a reversal of what God did in Genesis 1 here. Made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The one who rules over all creation sends a strong wind, for God uses means very often. So this wind blows, and it blows all night. And friends, this, this wasn't some nice, gentle breeze, right? This, this, this is a water-moving kind of wind. This is a sea-parting kind of wind. This is a serious wind. I imagine it's a howling wind until a pathway for you appears through the sea. A pathway of dry Land. I mean, you put your foot on it. It's, it's dry. And there's a wall of water over here. And there's a wall of water over there. What was that like? And then with hardened hearts, the Egyptians follow, and the divine warrior begins to fight for his people. He's already protecting them back here with a cloud and the pillar, but now the divine warrior fights for them. He throws the Egyptians into a panic. He's clogging here. Did you notice clogging the wheels of their chariots, their, their powerful war tanks? God, God just disables them. God does for his people what they cannot do for themselves. Do you, do you know that? That's the kind of God he is. He does for you what you can't do for yourself. We're helpless. We're vulnerable. Walls of water. Here they come. They're thrown into a panic. God does for you what you cannot do for yourself. And the Egyptians realize this. In verse 25, they say, let us flee. Let us flee from before Israel for the Lord, their God, fights for them against the Egyptians. So they had thought Israel was trapped at the sea when actually the trap was for them now being sprung upon the Egyptians. Verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And of the terrifying, awesome, fearful Egyptian army, verse 28 says, not one of them remained. Of all those whose hearts were hardened and followed into the sea, not one remained. And there, there is a sense of poetic justice in a way, as the Egyptians had previously sought to drown the male Hebrew babies earlier in the book. 
Now their army is drowned instead. Their hearts hardened as God gave them over to what they wanted, and God gets glory through judgment. He gets glory through judgment. And you find this piece of our theology of salvation throughout the Bible. Throughout Scripture, think about the flood of Genesis. Another watery judgment on the entire human race at that time, yet bringing salvation for Noah and his family in the ark. Or the Passover in this book, God's plague of judgment on the Egyptian firstborn, bringing salvation for those trusting in the blood of a lamb. And certainly it points forward to the cross of Jesus Christ where God's judgment fell on his innocent, pure, perfect son, bringing salvation for all who believe. God saves through judgment, which points to the fact that God will judge all sin. Here's a piece of our theology of salvation. Here's an important idea that has a consequence. Those sins not paid for by Jesus will be met with justice for all eternity in a real place called hell. The drowning of the Egyptian army, this instance of salvation through judgment, this instance of fearful judgment, it points forward that way, doesn't it? To one day, just and eternal judgment in a real place called hell. And yet there is salvation here as well. There is salvation here as well. The uh, the Israelites, rather, see the Egyptians who had been pursuing them now littering the seashore dead. Their, Their enemies drowned. What would this mean for them? What would this mean for you? If you're one of those Israelites, locate yourself in the story. You just see your enemies drowned. What would this mean for you? It would mean salvation is certain. It would mean deliverance confirmed. And so Alec Motir likens this scene to the resurrection of Jesus where the Passover lamb points to the cross of Christ, the parting of the sea for the people is similar to the resurrection of Christ. This assurance of salvation, the Israelites experience here, this assurance of deliverance is like the assurance we should have as we behold the empty tomb. As we see he is raised and we have we have confirmation, we have assurance that we too shall be delivered from sin and death ourselves. In fact, the Apostle Paul likens this scene at the sea to a baptism. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The implication, dear friends, the implication is you've had your own Exodus experience. If you are in Christ, you've experienced your own Exodus. You've been baptized not into Moses, but into Jesus. 
The waters of judgment spread for you, opened for you through his son. A pathway of deliverance and reconciliation to God through Jesus. You've experienced a more profound exodus. Deliverance from wrath joined to Jesus for life forever. So God's judgment is real. Track with me. God's judgment is real. He is holy. He is just. He cannot be otherwise. But his judgment was poured out on his son for our salvation for all who believe because he is gracious and merciful and full of love. So God saves for his glory and he saves through judgment. How should we respond? So what? How should we Respond. Let's see a third piece of this theology of salvation here. Thirdly, salvation unto reverent faith, I'll call it. Salvation now unto reverent faith. Here's our response. A reverent faith toward God. Verse 30. Verse 30. Thus the Lord saved, saved Israel that day. From the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They see the Egyptian dead. They behold God's great power, and their response is twofold. Fearing God, holding him in awe and, and reverence and, and wonder, that kind of fear. Awe and wonder and believing. They've gone from fearing greatly in verse 10 to a very different kind of fear, a holy fear of awe and reverence and wonder with faith. Those things go together, friends. Holy fear and faith, what I'm calling a reverent faith. Let's apply this in a few ways. A reverent faith in response. Let's apply that in a few ways. First, this is the right response for us to a salvation that is all of grace. This is the right response to a salvation that is all of grace. Recall, Israel was trapped, helpless, hopeless, completely vulnerable. 600 chariots rolling down on top of them. That's how we were in our sin and the sinful condition in which we were born. Left to ourselves, friends, hopeless, helpless, unable to rescue ourselves. It's important we see that. In 2014, the former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, was talking about his legacy, initiatives he had spearheaded, like eliminating secondhand smoke from public places and reducing gun violence. Then he said something kind of surprising. He said, quote, I'm telling you, 
if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. I have earned my place in heaven. He said, it's not even close. Now, I am not seeking to put Mr. Bloomberg down. I'm seeking to illustrate that he has a theology of salvation. We all do. But his theology of salvation does not include his utter helplessness before God. Does your salvation of that salvation include it? Does your theology of salvation include your utter helplessness before a holy God? When it does, and you respond in reverent faith, that undercuts self-righteousness in our lives. It undercuts that kind of us versus themness that we can have. You know, we're in here, but those people out there, I'm going to keep them at arm's length. They're different. They have a different lifestyle, a belief system. They reject a biblical sexual ethic or what have you, so I reject them. No, friends, locate yourself in this drama. The Israelites did not cross through on dry ground, get to the other side, see the Egyptian army destroyed, and then say, look at our moral superiority. <laughs> look at how wise we are. Look at how impressed God is with my lifestyle. Those, those uncircumcised enemies of God, they got what was coming to them. No, I'm pretty sure they got to the other seashore in reverent faith, fearing and believing, and they said, that was pure grace. How else could you respond? That was pure grace. Friends, let us leave here saying the same. Our theology of salvation should take us to the same exact place. All of pure grace. <laughs> the, the, the response to such a salvation in reverent faith is merely, Help! <laughs> Help me! Have mercy on me. I claim the blood of the Lamb. That's all we can do. And that is the soil in which reverent faith sprouts and grows. And if you're yet to experience that grace, again, I'm so glad you're here. You can cry out to God in your own helplessness right now. Have mercy on me, Lord. I encourage you to do so. Trust in him. That this can be a day of salvation for you. So there's a response here of reverent faith to this salvation by grace. But, but what if you're here and you are a believer in Jesus, but you're struggling with doubts, as we often do. Struggling with doubts. Reverent faith seems like, I don't know, a pretty big stretch. 
Well, locate yourself in this passage as well. The people here begin in verse 10, fearing greatly. So what's happening here is God is being faithful to the faithless. And this is how he relates to me all the time. God is being faithful to the faithless. And their faith in verse 31, look, it's not like some fully developed faith. Okay, it's not a strong, mature faith. They're going to have real doubts real soon. Lots of them. But their faith, their reverent faith, is doing at least this much, we're told. Beholding the object of their faith. Did you notice that? In verse 31, Israel, Israel saw the great power of the Lord. They saw the power of the object of their faith. And you can do so as well today. In the midst of the wrestling with doubts, fears, and anxieties. Look away from yourself to the object of your faith. And his great power toward you in Jesus. I like how Tim Keller has put this. He said, if you're falling off a cliff, imagine that. If you're falling off a cliff, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Salvation, he said, is not finally based on the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. Friends, this in this passage, this is weak faith in a strong branch. And that's enough. That's enough for you. Salvation is not based on the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. So here, behold the object of your faith, the God who saves for his glory. But maybe a third category. What if you're suffering? We prayed for, I know, just a slice of the hard experience that exists even in this room right now. What if you're going through trials, difficulty, suffering? What does reverent faith look like for you? Well, recall, this is a people who have suffered greatly in their slavery, and more difficulties are coming because God God is here training a people to trust him. And that's why they were stuck at the seashore. God is training a people to trust him. He has his people here in a crash course on trusting God. And you might be in the same crash course right now. So locate yourself in this story. Because you've experienced a greater exodus. Christ. In his son, he parted the, the waters of judgment for you. In his son, he parted the waters of justified wrath for you for a pathway of salvation on dry ground. So as Charles Spurgeon once said, if you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. 
you might be in a situation right now where you cannot trace his hand, and we want to support you and care for you. I'm just saying you have reason to also trust his heart. He parted the waters of deserved judgment in Jesus. You can trust him. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, good theology must exist because, friends, just about every day, bad theology exists in tab. And maybe you can relate. So take this theology of salvation home with you. God saves for his glory through judgment, through fearsome, awesome judgment unto our reverent faith. Let's pray. The band can come back up. And take a moment, if you would, to identify where reverent faith, where this theology of salvation might function for you even this moment. It might be in glorying in his pure grace toward you, undercutting any kind of us versus them mentality, just glory and grace. It might be in the midst of doubts. It might be in the midst of suffering. It might be in trusting Christ for the first time. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this picture, as Moses says here, that we would see the salvation of the Lord. We see your salvation pointing us to the salvation you have accomplished, blessed Trinity. The Father not sparing his Son, the Son becoming incarnate for us the Spirit applying the death and resurrection of our Savior. Help us to rejoice in so great an exodus experience ourselves. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.